As I've gotten older, there are certain things I had anticipated and a few things I hadn't anticipated. Uh, I had anticipated I was going to start groaning when I would bend over and pick up, uh, pick up stuff in the yard. I anticipated in the middle of the night I would wake up and have a hard time going back to sleep or I would have a, have a difficult time sleeping. I kind of anticipated there were going to be aches and pains that I had never experienced before. Something I had not anticipated is I would become more tender-hearted and more compassionate toward people that live on the fringes. When I talk about the fringes, I talk about it in a couple of different ways. My heart, my heart really hurts for lonely people. Uh, I, I get very, very burdened when I see people who have a tendency to, to stand to the side or or, or a little bit isolated, and it, it, it hurts me for them. I feel about homeless people more compassion than I used to feel. I think I used to just think primarily they're, they're probably there because of drugs or mental illness. Well, that might very well be true. There, there are a lot of people that are homeless. Some of it has to do with their own bad choices. Some of it has to do with mental illness. Some of it has to do they just never had a real good opportunity to get a strong start in life. Maybe raised in poverty. Never had an opportunity to have a, a good education. Uh, they never, maybe never had a mom or dad that invested in them and loved them and nurtured them and cared about them. There's a, a couple that sleeps under I-64 bridge where we come down Hurstbourne. We call them a couple. They're not really a couple. There's an older man that sleeps at one end and a younger lady that sleeps at the other end. And they, they sleep right there, right there next to the road. We're, we, we're concerned about them. We, we pray for them. We, we sometimes talk about, how, I wonder how they got there. And I don't know if it's age, sentimentality, maybe I'm just a better person. I, I don't know what it is, but my, hurt, my heart hurts more for people. Because whether they're for mental illness, drug or alcohol abuse, they, they just got a terrible start in life, thrust out into the world without much love and, and nurturing. Whatever, whatever it is, it's very, they were once little children. Some of them were little children that were loved by their family, nurtured by their family, cared for by their family, and their family has no idea where they are. I wonder about those things. The story that Abby read to us today, sometimes we see it as just a story. And when we read the stories of the Bible, it's just like maybe something we would catch on Netflix. It's just a story. But the, the story that Abby read to us was about a, a real person, a person that genuinely, actually lived. He had a mother and father who had hopes and dreams for him probably when he was quite young. He probably had hopes and dreams of his own. 
Maybe his father was an artist and he dreamed being an artist. And maybe his father was a herder and, his, and he dreamed of having a, a flock of his own. But the circumstances and the situation that Jesus found him in were almost subhuman. He's a human being in the most deplorable of, of situations and conditions. So we can often read that, but we don't feel anything about it. Whenever you read a story in the Bible, you need to ask, what do the stories around it say to us? How, do, how does it all fit together? It's not like the author of the gospel that we're studying, the gospel of Luke, just picked out random stories and just strung them together. He's a very skilled literary craftsman, one of the best in the New Testament. And when you look at the stories that are strung together, one we've looked at, one we're looking at today, two we'll look at in the next week or so, what we see are four stories, one that we looked at, Jesus calming a storm, the story today, Jesus casting out a multitude of demons, then Jesus healing a woman who's very, very sick, and then resuscitating a dead girl, a 12-year-old girl, and bringing her back to life. Well, what is Luke saying by putting these stories together? He's saying something to us, not about the storm or the demons or the sickness or the death. He is saying something about that, but he's telling us something more. He wants to tell us about Jesus. Every story in the Gospel of Luke ultimately goes back to Jesus. And what he's telling us is Jesus has authority over nature. He calms the storm. Jesus has authority over evil. He casts out the demons. Jesus has authority over sickness. Even a woman that's been bleeding for 12 years with a gynecological problem, he has authority over sickness. He has authority over death, and he resuscitates. He brings back to life a 12-year-old girl. How can you not love him? I mean, how can you not just be enthralled and enraptured with somebody with that kind of authority? over nature, demons, sickness, and death. You know, the story that we looked at where Jesus calms the storm ends with a very interesting question. If you have your Bibles open, your handheld device, just look back to the, the story preceding the one that Abby read to us. The question is, who is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? And what we often do is we just go to the next story. We don't connect it to the previous story, but what he's doing in this story is he's answering the question for us. Who is he? He's one that can look into the eyes of a man possessed by demons, and the demons, the demons cower in fear, and he doesn't blink. That's who he is. That's the kind of man that looks teaching us about as we work our way through this book. Whenever you talk about exorcisms, whenever you talk about demons, it, it's easy to be in one of two extremes. I, I spoke with you about this a number of weeks ago. C.S. Lewis, one of the great uh, Christians of the 20th century, a literary scholar taught at Oxford and Cambridge, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, Wrote, uh, wrote a book on miracles, 
wrote a book on Christianity. He, he, he was an agnostic, a committed agnostic, and he was one to saving faith by J.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book entitled The Screwtape Letters. I'll refer to it a couple of times this morning. The Screwtape Letters is a book written by C.S. Lewis to try and help us understand the workings of the unseen world of spiritual reality. The book is a correspondence, a series of letters written between a senior demon and a novice demon. And the senior demon is writing letters to this novice demon, giving him instructions and advice about how to mature in his craft and trade, and the novice demon will respond with letters asking for advice and insight and, and giving reports about his nefarious works. But in the, in the preface to the book, C.S. Lewis warns us about the very thing I'm warning you about this morning. That, that is, there's two extremes. One is as bad as the other. One is to become fascinated and captivated by the unseen world of spiritual reality, as if it's the major theme of the Bible. God is the major character in the Bible. Redemption is the major theme in the Bible. Or at the other end of the spectrum, to be where many of us are in 21st century life, we might acknowledge the reality of Satan and demons because we believe the Bible, but it really, it really doesn't it really doesn't affect how we pray or think about life. So this is what, what C.S. Lewis writes. He says, one extreme is to disbelieve in Satan and demons' existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. The demons themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. You know, we might be led to believe, well, you know, exorcism, demons, all of that. We see it in the Gospels. There's not much, much about it in the rest of the Bible. Let me just give you a few little excerpts to dispel that notion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, this is what Paul wrote. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Another reference from Paul, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. I, I read this to you a week or two ago. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Don't give the devil a foothold. That's the way some translations have it. That is, when we begin to express our anger, I'm not talking about righteous indignation, but most of the time our anger isn't righteous indignation. Most of the time it's frustration and, and uh, anger that something's not done the way we want it done, when we want it done, how we want it done. That easily becomes a habit pattern. It can become a stronghold. And when it becomes a stronghold or a habit pattern, the only person that doesn't know they're an angry person is the angry person. The people that live with them, work with them, know them, they know they're angry people, but the person who 
the person who is the angry person has long since disbelieved they're, angry, they're an angry person. Now, you can take anger and you can put in a multitude of, of sins in there. Uh, some people are just complainers, belly achers. Nothing ever goes their way when they want it to go their way, how they want it to go their way. That is, complaining is the national pastime. Just watch the evening news. And so it gives the devil an opportunity. It's like a beachhead. It's like the allies getting a beachhead on the, on the, uh, on the beaches of Normandy. And when they got that beachhead on the beaches of Normandy, there was almost no chance the Germans were going to be able to win that war. Now, with the right moves and the right strategies, there's the possibility to, to expand the war. There might even have been some possibility to win the war, but it became much, 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 much more difficult when the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy. Paul put it this way in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, it is, not against, it is not against flesh and blood, but against the ruler, I'm sorry, for our struggle it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So all of that gives us a context and, some, and some, some insight about how to think about the passage that Abby read to us today. The first thing that I want you to notice is this. I want you to observe the terrible condition of the demoniac. Observe the terrible condition of the demoniac. And what I want you to see is sin always takes us further than we could have ever imagined. It takes us further than we ever intended to go. His, his condition is it's so sad. In verse 26, we see that the disciples are in an unfamiliar setting. They've crossed the Sea of Galilee. They've moved from Jewish territory, Galilee, to Gentile territory, the region of Gadara. And so they're in Gentile territory. They're in a land now of the occult and superstition and mysticism. They're no longer in the, in the land of Yahweh, the land where Yahweh is worshipped, where God is worshipped. They're in the land of paganism. They've crossed the Sea of Galilee. They've had a, they, they experienced a tumultuous, horrible storm on the Sea of Galilee. They no sooner get out of the boat onto dry ground than they encounter a man-possessed by a multitude of demons. As I've thought about it and just imagined it in my mind, I'd rather be in the storm than facing that man. They're getting out of the boat and saying, oh my goodness, what a relief. We could have drowned out there. And then running down the hill as a wild-eyed demoniac coming right for them, uh, they probably are ready to get back into the boat and find another storm. And so the man approaches them. It's an unexpected encounter. In one sense, God has taken them there so that the disciples can learn that Jesus is Lord over evil. He's taken them from the land of the Jew to the land of the Gentile, from Galilee to Gadara, in order to teach the disciples Jesus is Lord of evil. 
Lord over evil. In another sense, he's taking him there because there's a man that needs him. A man that everybody in his world has given up hope on. What hope could you possibly have for a man that is in the moral condition that this man is in? The, the description that's given is a, it's a classic description of demonization. He doesn't have schizophrenia. He doesn't have some kind of psychosis. The Bible clearly, unambiguously describes this, not as a mental illness, which, uh, which is real. There are mental illnesses that have absolutely nothing to do with the demonic. But this is not mental illness. As the story unfolds, it becomes more and more clear. He has a complete disregard for personal dignity. He is naked. He lives with social isolation. That's what the devil wants to do. He wants to separate people from people. Isn't that what happens to us sometimes when we begin to struggle in life? And then we begin to think, well, you know, nobody's calling me from church. They don't care about me. They don't think about me. They don't love me. I think I'll just stay home. And one week becomes two and two weeks becomes six. He wants to isolate us. He wants to push us away from the very people that we need to be connected to. Uh, he, he, the demoniac, lived in the, in the simplest kind of shelter. He lived among tombs and in caves. However, he was very theologically astute in one sense. The demons knew who Jesus was better than the disciples. There was a supernatural recognition of Jesus. The only, the only acknowledgement of Jesus as Son of God in the Gospel of Luke before this is when God said at Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Now the demons make a Christological confession. The demons confess that Jesus is the Son of God. The disciples are coming to the conclusion He's probably the Messiah, but to call Him a Son of God, that's something beyond what they were ready to acknowledge or even contemplate. You'll notice a demonic control of speech excessive shouting, uncontrollable behavior, extraordinary strength. Classic signs of demonization. You see more of this kind of thing in, in mission settings than you do in, in Western civilization. I think that demons no need to manifest themselves we live in a civilization, we're taught from our earliest days that unless you can put it in a test tube, whether you can analyze it scientifically, whether you can examine it with mathematical formulas, it doesn't exist. All that really exists is what we see. There's no unseen world of spiritual reality. Say, Pastor, have you ever seen anything like this? Not exactly to this degree, but I've been in ministry since... 1985, I can tell you that it does exist. It's a, it's a sad condition. He was once somebody's little boy, as I mentioned. He once had hopes and dreams and aspirations, as I mentioned. We don't know what it was that sent him down this road, but nevertheless, this is where we find him. 
I want you to notice, secondly, I want you to recognize Jesus' absolute authority over the forces of darkness. The tormentors fear being tormented. What a reversal. Those that were tormenting this poor man are afraid of being tormented by Jesus. They're they're in absolute fear of him. In verse 28, you'll notice the demoniac bows before Jesus and acknowledges Jesus to be the Son of God. In verse 30, we find out the demon's name. This is the only time Jesus ever spoke to a demon in conversation, which is why I find this episode so interesting. Earlier in a Capernaum synagogue, when we talked about Jesus casting out a demon, the demon demon spontaneously cried out, and Jesus shut the demon up and cast the demon out. Here, Jesus asked the demon its name. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. 6,000 soldiers in a Roman legion. I don't believe that there were 6,000 demons in this man. I don't think a person could survive that kind of demonization. But there were a, there were a multitude of demons. He says, we are many. And then there's a strange turn of events. The demons begin to beg Jesus not to send them out of the land. We don't know why they wanted to be there. We don't know why they wanted to stay there. It was a land filled with superstition, occultic activity, witchcraft, all of the things that went along with with, uh, that kind of culture in the first century world. But rather than being sent out of the land, they wanted to be sent into the pigs. They request to be sent into the pigs. Something that you've got to do, and you've heard me say this before as well, you've got to let the Bible tell us what we need to know, and we just have to be satisfied with what we can't know. That is, I've written two books on spiritual warfare, and I had to come to the settled conclusion, I can only know what the Bible tells me, speculation is not very helpful, and it can be dangerous. All that I need to know, the Bible tells me, why do they want to go into the pigs? I really don't know. It does tell us they're in Gentile territory because there wouldn't be pig farmers in Jewish territory in Galilee. So we do know we're in Gentile territory. But what's even more strange is Jesus permits them to go into the pigs, and then the pigs stampede into the Sea of Galilee. Now, the poor disciples, I don't know which is worse, the storm at sea, a wild-eyed naked demoniac, or a, or a herd of stampeding pigs. That's a rough morning. And there they are watching this herd of pigs. Why did they, why did they go in the pigs and then the pigs stampede into the, into the Sea of Galilee? I don't know. The demons were afraid that Jesus had come to, to send them into the abyss. The word abyss means bottomless pit. In Revelation chapter 20, Satan, the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, and all of Satan's demons are cast into the bottomless pit. They think maybe the time has arrived. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipresent. They don't have any insight into the, into the near or distant future. Maybe the future has arrived and their destiny has come, but Jesus permits them to go into the pigs. And then they run into the sea. 
What's clear is that Jesus is in absolute control of the situation. Now, we read passages like this, and, and you might be reading them to your, to your children and family devotions. Maybe you're reading them at night before they go to bed. It, it can be quite frightening and disturbing to little ones. So you have to be careful when you introduce them to this passage, but if you're going to read the Bible to your children, they're going to, they're going to hear you read stories like this. So you, you don't want to stop there. You want to take them to verses like 1 John 4.4. 4. 1 John 4.4 4 says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Who is in the Christian? The Spirit of God. Who is in the world? Satan and his demons. You could take them to Colossians chapter 2, where he's talking about the crucifixion. Paul writes, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, so forgiveness, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Jesus Christ has defeated the powers of darkness. But I want you to notice a third idea, and that is the surprising aftershock. The aftershock is fear and freedom. Fear by the townspeople, the herdsmen, freedom for the man. In verse 34, the, the, the herders, uh, those who are caring for the pigs, uh, they've seen all of this unfold, and they go to the, the village and get the townspeople, and they bring them out to the Sea of Galilee on that eastern shore. And what they discover is, is unbelievable. The man who was naked is clothed. The man who was running is sitting. The man who was out of his mind is in his right mind. The man who was shouting is speaking in a normal, in a normal voice. Unbelievable transformation. But the people, they're, they're so afraid that they want Jesus to leave. The demons beg him to let them go into the pigs. The people beg him to leave. They don't know what to do with him, what to make of him. The man on the other side, on the other hand, he wants to follow Jesus. He begs Jesus. There's a lot of begging going on. The demons are begging, the people are begging, and now the man is begging. He wants to go with Jesus. He wants to follow Jesus. Jesus does something that we've not seen him do before. Now remember, all of his ministry in this point has been in Jewish territory. So he would heal somebody and he would say, I don't want you to say anything about this. In the next story, he's going to resuscitate a dead girl, Jairus' daughter. She's 12 years old, going to bring her back to life. He's going to tell the parents, don't tell anybody about this. He didn't want to be known as just a miracle worker. He came to be a savior. But he's in Gentile territory. They're not looking for a Messiah. They don't expect a Messiah. They don't believe in the Jewish writings. So he says to the man, go home and tell your family what good things, what great things God did for you. You can only imagine if you were this man's parents. 
what it would have been like to see your son walk through the door in his right mind. You can only imagine if you were his siblings, having, having heard the prayers of your or the, the hurt and the anguish of your parents, and then to see your, your brother come back home. But the man doesn't tell them what great things God did for him. He tells them what great things Jesus did for him. Luke is a skilled literary craftsman. Sometimes he is subtle and sometimes not so subtle. Here, not so subtle. He's wanting us to know he believes Jesus Christ to be God. He believes that Jesus Christ is God. What great things Jesus did for him. So we see here the wonderful transformation Jesus can make in the most hopeless of situations. So, you may have a transgender adult son. going through hormone therapy whom you love and want a relationship with but they want absolutely no relationship with you because of what you believe about God created in the beginning male and female and you know that no gender therapy can change a person's chromosomes And you've sunk into the despair of hopelessness. If Jesus can change this man's life, he can reach your son, your daughter, your mother, your father, your coworker, your friend. If Jesus can change this man, there's nobody he can't change. We've seen two responses. There's, there's fear and freedom. But I want to suggest there's a third possible response, and that response is indifference. The townspeople, they've seen it, they've watched it, they described it, and yet they remain indifferent. This is some of the best advice the senior demon ever gave the novice demon in the book, The Screw Tapes Letters. He says, the more often the human feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act. And in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. Let me read it again. The more often the human feels without acting, the less he will be able ever to act, and in the long run, the less he will be able to feel. That sounds a sad way to end a sermon, but that's not the way I want to end the sermon. I want to turn to another writer, Martin Luther, leader of the Protestant Reformation. 
Martin Luther wrote a hymn in 1527 entitled, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. It's based on Psalm 46. This morning we sang a song written by our worship pastor based on Psalm 8. Luther wrote this based on Psalm 46. Listen to the words. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fail him. And I can tell you, Jesus is that word. I'm going to ask you to stand and let me lead us in a word of prayer. It may be today you'd like to speak to someone after the service. If you go to one of our guest information tables, we'll have people there that are happy to talk with you, pray, pray with you, and to, and to counsel you privately. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that the one that we serve sits on heaven's throne. He's at your right hand. He rules and reigns over all of the forces of heaven and earth. And Father, thank you for the fact that there is no life that can't be reached as long as there is a heart beating and a breath being taken. So we pray today that you would take your word, use it in our lives for your glory, our good, in Jesus' name, amen.